You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, an inoculation against viruses of the heart and mind, immune repair for the soul, homeopathic stimulation of the urge to connect, and psychic support for those daring enough to find the others. This is not a test. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, social innovator, author of Your Money or Your Life, and host of the podcast, What Could Possibly Go Right, Vicki Robin. What is an appropriate scale for a human to have a sense of self-expression and true mastery? Vicki will be helping us find ways to emerge from this moment of social and economic despair so we can reckon together with the consequences of confusing monetary wealth with human freedom. It's time to intervene on behalf of the people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. One person who truly understands healthy collaboration and exchange is my guest today, author, activist, and social innovator Vicki Robin. I had the pleasure of appearing on the podcast she does for the Post Carbon Institute, What Could Possibly Go Right, which gave me an excuse to revisit her books, including Your Money or Your Life, about true financial independence, and her more recent book on living entirely on locally produced food, Blessing the Hands That Feed Us. Vicky is to conversation what Coltrane was to jazz. Coming from her cottage in Whidbey Island, north of Seattle, Washington, here's Vicky Robin. I don't want to die anytime soon, but I don't know. Eventually, I'm going to be 60 in a year, so we're in less in a few months. So that's it. You're nothing. You're a pisha. <laughs> right? 60 is the new 40. Right. 60 is the new 40. Right? <laughs> and 40 is the new 30. I, I used that for a long time. I'm right. 75. And 30, so. God, is the new 13, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Actually, humanity, that's about, yeah, right. 13 is the new um, four. We're just out of toddler. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, it was weird. Timothy Leary was really into this concept called neoteny, the idea that adults have childlike features and that the more, the the longer the childhood of a species, the more evolved it is. So that's why we should look at it as a good thing that 30-year-olds are living in their parents' houses still. Well, I'll tell you, (laughs) that's a good thing because, I mean, from a consumerism point of view, that's a really good thing. Right. Sharing a household is like back, you know, in the days when I was lecturing about the ecological footprint, the biggest thing you can do to lower your ecological footprint is be poor. Yeah. Because you just don't have as much opportunity to the planet. Oh, we're not recording. <laughs> we are, but that's all right. We're <laughs> okay. not radio. Well, it is a little bit radio, but. But anyway, no, it's like, and that's so counterintuitive for the consumer culture. Right. To aspire to that. It's like nobody aspires to that. Yeah, we all think, I mean, it's the life stages, you know, but I mean, that's all made up in Madison Avenue. But yeah, you're 18, you go to college and you set out into the world. I mean, I remember when Boys and girls, men and women, they lived with their parents, or if they couldn't, you lived in like a boarding house with a surrogate parent until you got married. Right. And then they built an extension onto the house. Right. But, you know, I guess it was, you know, but I grew up with Marlo Thomas and that girl, you know, or Mary Tyler Moore. You're single and you get your apartment and you live this independent 1960s life. And ah, 
individualism to crack. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm writing an essay now about having bought a refrigerator. Are you at all interested in my talking about that? Sure. <laughs> so my two refrigerator. I, I had a refrigerator that I bought, of course, used, and it was the most energy efficient refrigerator, of course. And uh, I didn't buy it used. I bought it scratch and dent, you know, and then uh -huh. I put a little magnet of my of cats over the, the dents and scratches. And I had it for 10 years. And for the last two years, it was freezing my food. I mean, and, and I was managing it and it, it had forgotten how to defrost itself. And so I was defrosting it. I mean, I was a function of my refrigerator and always trying to salvage my celery. So I finally said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to graduate from this. And I got the refrigerator and I had this sinking feeling that I had finally totally gone middle class. I had lost all my cred as a frugality person. And then it made me realize that... It's a very interesting thing, but I realized I have a greater memory of things in my life. I can tell you about almost everything in the house I lived in, my parents' house I lived in from the time I was like nine to 13 or something. I can walk through that house and I can describe everything. I cannot tell you about my mother's face. And it's just like, what, what is this? It was like such a shock. And I realized I can tell you about every car I've had, but I can't bring up my brother's face. You know, and I lived in a fairly cold household. And I'm, of course, I'm famous for like critiquing materialism. And here it is that I realized that I bonded with things. And I'll bet you lots of people are bonding with things. And it wasn't consumerism. It's just the things stayed put. <laughs> you know, in some ways, it's anti-materialism, though, because consumer materialism is everything's disposable. So you buy 90 cars, where a positive materialism is you respect, like this little pen I got from V. Vale, the guy who used to put together the research and V-search books. And I was in his apartment, I saw him writing, and I went, oh, that's such a cute pen. And he's Japanese. Immediately, he's like, oh, you like it here? It gives it to me. Exactly. And that was 20 years ago. And I've kept it and I cherish it. And that's not bad consumerism. That's conservative materialism. Exactly. That's honoring the stuff of life mm. and being in relationship with the stuff of life. It's just interesting to me that it was possible for me to bleed out humans. I could... Yeah, it's just very interesting. And maybe it's, I was I was wondering about this as whether it's pro-survival, you know, that like when we were coming up, coming out of the trees and across the savannah, maybe we didn't need to. We didn't need to bond with our mother's face. We needed to bond with things. You know, we need to find food. So basically it's, it's it, I just want to, I think I'm going to write, write a long essay or book about it. It makes sense. I mean, and, you know, from what I've been reading about the way uh, nomadic people lived way, way back when, they were not bonded as families. They were bonded as little tribes. You know, when a kid would be six, seven, eight years old, and one tribe would pass the other, they would trade children because they didn't want to have the same genes all the time. So they would actually give their kids to the other tribe, and that tribe would give, give kids to you. I mean, so that you, you know, so you're not all you know, having sex with all your cousins all the time. Uh, but it's interesting. But if you're going to do that, then you can't bond to your child's face the same way, you know, that we do in this nuclear family society. 
It's a very strange thing. You know, I don't know if we're now bonding with computer screens and then we have the pandemic. And so now I'm bonding with your face because you're coming through my screen. And I think bondedness is, is, to me, it's very important. Belonging is very important. You know, in consumerism, you sort of belong to your things. You know, in, in reality, your things are part of your capacity to live in this world. I was thinking about when we spoke for your show. And, you know, it felt really good when we spoke, I think for both of us. And then I wasn't sure if that happened because we exchanged these great strategies for lifting humanity out of this mess and toward greater sustainability or, or as the kids today call it, resilience. Or is it because of just the basic human connection and rapport that we experience, the acknowledgement in some ways of our mutual hopes and despair, some sympathy, compassion, almost palliative care as we proceed at best over an event horizon into the strange attractor at the end of time, or at worst, over an unnecessary self-annihilation of our of our species. I mean, or maybe those in some ways are are the same thing. But as middle-aged people now, I'm wondering, what are we doing? Are we actively making the world better and averting disaster, or are we just doing palliative care? So number one, in terms of resonance, I do, you know, when I was when I was doing my little introduction to your podcast on my podcast, you know, I was talking about being a Lonsman. You know, I think there's a music to unbroken lineages of culture. You know, and whether it's it's sort of New York Jew or whether it's Jew, there is a prior music. What do they call it? A nigun or whatever it mm-hmm. is, there's a something, there's a lilt. And on that carrier wave, and it doesn't even have to be, you know, did you get bar mitzvah? You know, it doesn't have to be anything like that. It's it's cultural. And so I think what are these layers of trust that we're willing to bestow on somebody so that we suspend suspicion? You know, the 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 wariness that people have of one another. You just have to like check it out. Is this person trustworthy? How much can I reveal to that person? Uh, friend, foe, food you know, poison. Part of that, that there's a resonance. And I'll bet you, you know, we couldn't, like, there's no smellies yet on our computers. But I'll bet you people who are from the same tribe smell right to each other. Mm. Uh, There's, and there's something with, you know, with indigenous peoples, they will introduce themselves as clan, tribe. They'll introduce themselves in their language and you can feel in the presence of that. At first, when I heard it, I felt antiquated. Like, I don't understand. Why isn't this person telling me about themselves, you know? But but there is a recognition that there is no solitary self apart from the, the tribe. And, and maybe we just have a, a, a matrix of tribe in our minds. And so when somebody shows up who's part of that matrix, there's an instantaneous 
flow. The other thing is, I, I don't know if you studied my whole biography, but one of the things I did was um, I started a dialogue process that was designed to be the simplest thing to allow friends, neighbors, and strangers in public places like cafes switch from small talk to big talk. And I did it because I was convinced that if we could just talk to each other, if we could do lateral connection, if people could turn to one another and go like, this is nuts, what do you think? You know? It's like, it came from seeing people in a, in a rainy evening in Seattle waiting for a bus. And, and it was even before cell phones, because now everybody would be on their phone. They were just waiting there. And I thought the power of those 50 people online, if they could turn to each other, would be enormous. So, and maybe this is weird, but I long for connection. I long for that carrier wave. I, I long for that thread to open up. And I feel it almost physically when somebody will open up the channel. And, and so the music is happening. It's sort of like a vibrational thing. And then you can riff. Then you can go anywhere you want to go. The whole purpose of this show was originally to almost model a style of conversational jazz. Exactly. And then that models a new way for people to experience rapport with each other. I used to say about the conversation cafes because, you know, when I'm, I'm sort of a social reformer, you know, <laughs> so when I get onto something, I'll do it for three years solid and I'll find out really what it is and I'll make everybody else want to play my game. Um, and in the conversation cafes, they usually went for 90 minutes and you would go around twice with a talking object, then you'd open it up. And what I would notice, there would be a magic that happens someplace in there where the conversation was having you, you weren't having it. There was uh, an epiphenomenon in the middle of it that we were all in relationship with. And that's sort of like when the jazz opens up and everybody goes away refreshed, but it's not because anybody was brilliant. I long for that. And, you know, I was thinking about talking to you today and about your focus on technology and our conversation about human connection, team human what do you think is going to be the outcome of people losing the habit of being in one another's presence? To me, it's like a starvation. Yeah, I think they're going to uh, hunger for it. I don't think it's going to be for so long that it'll drop out of our somatic memory. I have a feeling we will do the opposite of what the tech companies think is going to happen. I feel like they think that they've now entrained us to use this for school and socializing and meetings and all. And I think once we get out of this, I think people are going to be pretty hard pressed to get back into one of these spaces. They are so anchored in our psyche as what you do, like, like when there's a disease, when there's a pandemic, you go on Zoom, you know? So why would we go on this unless we had to? Oh, I see what you're saying. I actually noticed that there's a, there's a sweetness. Some, some communities, like I'll, you know, I'll join a, like a, a four-week class or something like that. And, you know, 300 people in all the little squares yeah. and from all over. And somehow I'm, I'm ending up in European ones more than, you know, U.S. ones. And it, it's like stunning. Oh, here I am. I'm with people from Sweden. And there's a, there's a feeling, there's another kind of feeling of being able to 
be with with all the music of the world, all these different musics, and not having to go there. Yeah, but that's scaled. I mean, so when I want to have a scaled experience around the world, oh, here's a Japanese scientist who's going to talk about this with my Swedish friend and me and someone in Silicon Valley, and we get the time zones right and we're there. Great, because that's something we couldn't do in real life. But, you know, when I'm looking at my Queens College students on a Zoom, instead of being in the seminar room with them, I feel like I'm robbed of all the positive feedback that I would normally get. It becomes so much more about the information that we're giving, the sort of utility value of the class that now is, is in the foreground. And all that soft, squishy, mimetic modeling is, is you know, pretty faint. I wonder, you know, I used to think I think I don't think it was original with me, this high tech, high touch or something, mm-hmm. you know, with the advent of telecommuting 100 years ago, uh, before many people listening were born, when it, it came into being, I thought, well, that's OK. You know, who wants to go to an office? But we have to have equal and opposite spaces and communities. You know, you have to develop a habit of inhabiting where you are. Interesting benefit in <laughs> being where you are. Yeah, I, I'm I'm big on relocalization. Yeah. I'm big on this thing could wink out at any moment. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just dependent on the continual flow of electrons. And this winks out and you're stuck with the people in your building. Yeah. You know? Well, and the food around you. I mean, and that's, you know, what what one of the things that ties together your two main books, you know, your money or your life and blessing the hands it feeds us is you're suggesting that we have these kind of large scaled systems, whether it's capitalism or long distance big agra that end up kind of delocalizing and decentering us. Your money or your life is, oh, do you want to be, I mean, most simply, are you committed to capitalism or are you committed to being alive? And they're two really different things. And the blessing the hand that feeds us. It's like, do you think of a carrot as something that a appears in the grocery store? Or is a carrot something that comes out of the ground six miles from where you live? And what's the difference in these two sensibilities of of the world? So it's not that, I mean, and I'm never, and neither are you, anti-tech. Here we are using tech to speak over 3,000 miles of distance. But our primary incarnation, the primary instance of ourselves is not our Facebook account or something there. It's this person in this body, in this place and time. I sometimes joke that I'm the, the kind of creature, I'm like the animal that if if it got its leg caught in a trap, it would chew its leg off. You know, I just have this like sovereignty, you know, being in possession of myself is really important to me. And it creates a, uh, a fascination with learning and with doing. And, you know, it, I, I appreciate that about myself. Uh, so both of these really are about if you want to unhook from the dominant system, they're not like political, they're not sociological, they're not saying what everybody should do. But it's all about if you recognize that you've been uploaded into shall we say the matrix or whatever, you've been uploaded into a system that is alien to you. It doesn't give us 
<laughs> it doesn't care about you at all. It doesn't nourish us or nurture us in spite of the fact that it looks like food or looks like money. Exactly. It looks like sustenance and it's not, it's money. And so we used to be more environmentally and socially competent. We didn't need money intervening in transactions in order to get our needs met. A lot of this really is about being humans with needs and how do we get our needs met? It's it's actually just so simple. And it's not just the needs for food. It's the needs for companionship and leisure and creativity and learning. And we have have so many needs if you want to like really be a juicy self-expressed human. And what this society does is it funnels us into really being sort of like we're little rats in a cave and there's this little nipple. And whenever we're hungry or thirsty, we can go like, mm, and we go on the nipple and we think we're free beings. We got a wheel to run on too. Well, totally. <laughs> totally. And if I was outside this cage, you know, there, there was a cartoon years ago that we used to use when we were doing Your Money, Your Life, which is like this little bird in a cage. And the first panel is, out there, the door is open, the cage door is open. It says, out there is intoxicating freedom. Next panel, in here is basically three hots and a cot. <laughs> and then there's a, a silent panel where he's thinking, and then it's like, who the heck left the door open? <laughs> you know? And so this really, you know, if you think, if you go underneath all the things I've done, it, it is disintermediating from the... A false world. I was thinking, you know, like money is actually, I think this pandemic has shown us more clearly than ever, the man behind the the curtain. We see more clearly the levers that are being pulled that run our lives. And really, money is the operating system. It is the operating system for humanity. It is the one thing that we all agree on. We can go anywhere and we can like, now we can do it seamlessly with credit cards. We used to have to buy traveler's checks. (laughs) But it's, that is the language and money is, we can't create money. We can, we can do all sorts of like buy nothing would be or buy nothing New York. You know, we can do all forms of exchange outside of the money system, And a lot of people are trying to live their lives almost outside of the money system, but it's really consciously moderating your exposure to a toxic world. It's interesting, though. I mean, there's so many points. So when you're talking about money, you know, using money around the world, I mean, I remember as a kid, we went went to Israel on a family trip, and we go wandering in the Arab section of Jerusalem, which is, you know maybe dangerous, you know, as Jews, whatever, over the line, on their side or whatever. And I remember as we cross over into the Arab section, my mom checks in her purse. To, oh, I've got the American Express Traveler's checks, right? Because Carl Malden used to tell us, you know, uh, he's an actor. He'd say, don't leave home without it, right? It's, it's like right. you're, you're, you're safe with this thing. And I remember thinking, well, really? Our American Express traveler's checks mean so much to these other people. It's almost like I could just see them, oh, you're Americans, and you think that this thing that you're going to sign over to me has value? You know, And it was like, it seemed to me so nationalist in a certain mm. way, or so Western, that we think that this thing, this symbol system, will have that. And of course, it turns out it does, you know? 
It has value everywhere. There's suitcases of money in every part of the world that you think doesn't that hates the more they hate us, you know, the the more the the money might be valuable. But really, it's a symbol that somehow got invested with value. And that's part of why I think digital happens so completely, because we already, like you say, we were on this abstract operating system of central currency. And digital is, again, the whole thing is symbols. It's not real. It's not analog. It's not like a record. It's just letters and ASCII to text and all. It's not real. So of course, it's going to dovetail with money perfectly. Digital and capital, they can go off. But those of us in real scaled biological social reality really have almost nothing to do with those symbol systems. And now instead of us using those systems, those symbols and systems are using us and sucking whatever's out of us, uh, uh, whatever's left. Yeah. And it's worse actually, because the more there's AI and robotics, the less us we're, we're needed, really. We're just a burden. You know, we're really a burden on the system. To the system, to their system, not to each other, not to reality, no, to them. Not to, to each other. But but we're in a just a massive bifurcation. If you know, it's like I'm sure Bernie's talking about this, but the most shocking thing is that people are losing their homes, they're getting impoverished, they can't eat, da da, and the stock market is soaring. That is a complete reflection of the value system that people are expendable. If we had something in us that the system actually needed from us, we would be less expendable. The system was invented to get rid of us, though. I mean, that's, you know, in my work, when I go back to the early corporations and central currency and all, that was all about getting human beings out of the equation. Don't pay people for the value they created. Pay them for their time. If that, you know, get them get them off so that your capital can grow. I mean, Marx wrote about this, too. It was never there. So, of course, if we're going to amplify a dehumanizing system with digital technology, it's going to accelerate the process at which people are eliminated from, you know, from from valuable enterprise. Totally. So if we if we're actually positing that there is a reality outside of the money-mediated system. There's a reality outside this. And it's not brutal, life is brutal short, and, you know, whatever the other words were. And it's not being busted back into the Stone Age. And it's, if we posit that there is a life that's available to us outside of this house of cards of the money system, what is that like? I mean, that's one of the things that I would like to write about is I think our imagination can't even, can't even make it into that territory, you know, and, and we, you know, I mean, who wants to do without movies? You know, I mean, well, and why would we have to do with that? It's like, there's you a, don't have there's to a do without movies. I know people are upset. You know, like, oh, if we adopt your platform cooperativism and all your local industries, how am I ever going to get my iPhone? And it's like, you could still have your iPhone. We could still build <laughs> 10, 20% of our stuff with giant, crazy corporations, but maybe not baby carrots and blackberry jam and things <laughs> that can come. You know what I mean? I can do blackberry jam, but I do it in the in the fall. Right. 
Right. And but, then you have to be friends with me to get Blackberry Jam. Um, yeah, but that's not a terrible thing. I, what I'm saying is, you know, so all of this activity that we've surrendered to, you know, Big Agra or, or the corporatocracy um, doesn't need to be. They can still make our iPhones or our BMWs or whatever you want, that your refrigerator, you know, if we need them, they can make those things. But we don't need our pe- pens and paper and food and shoes to come, you know, off a Chinese assembly line as well. That's that's a different thing. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's a hugely interesting conversation about what remains. And it's sort of like the exercise, okay, if you had 50 things that you wanted to absolutely keep from the industrial, the growth industrial economy, you know, really want to keep. So then you start thinking about the list. And when you start to think about that list, you'll get down to like item 12 or 13, and then you, you'll, you'll start to sputter. Because we think we need the whole bundle, but when you actually think concretely about that, about what is the best way to meet your needs for socializing, what's the best way to meet your needs for art, you start to realize there's this whole world outside of the funnel that looks like a cornucopia, but it's really just a force-fed funnel with sort of a, a GUI, a graphical user interface, you know? Well, yeah, it's consumerism. I mean, and and, and that's what we got television for. I mean, I always used to say, you know, I I used to think we had television because Lucille Ball wanted to reach the world with her comedy, right? And it wasn't. It was we got television to get people, to encourage people to buy more stuff than they needed. No, no, no. We had television. All these technologies in the beginning, I don't know if they're telling the truth, but every technology has had the story in the beginning that it's going to liberate humanity. Yeah, and be educational and lift people out of poverty. and Totally. So are we just fooling ourselves? Is that just a, you know, sort of Machiavellian people in the background, you know, (laughs) planning to like another section of world takeover? Or are these innocent projections onto new technology actually sincere? In the beginning, I experienced them sincerely, but I was a naive child <laughs> at the same time, right. underestimating the power of corporate capitalism. But then you could go the other way too, though. So I know communities, well intentioned communities, at least originally, who are listen to what we say and go, we're going to go off and start our own beautiful psychedelic love farm thing. <laughs> and I go and visit them, and a lot of them are. Guys, Burning Man guys in gaucho hats who are, you know, getting girls stoned on mushrooms and doing the same <laughs> terrible that guys do to girls stoned on mushrooms everywhere else in the world. You know, they they end up closed, chauvinistic, manipulative power communities. Not all of them, of course, but not all technologies end up bad. But there's there's a fear I have that, you know, human nature, boy, there's elements of human nature that seem to come out and express themselves in nasty ways, whether you're organic or <laughs> or techno-capitalist. Right, right, right. A lot of that is power relationships. It's like an immaturity that, you know, it's sort of that we were talking about earlier about, you know, the toddler mentality of, you know, just like the little kid with the finger pointing, you know, just the, and the grabbing. We haven't evolved, and I don't know if evolution is even 
this is even in the evolutionary cards, but we haven't evolved in maturity. You know, part of maturity is delay of gratification, is the realization that if I do this now, if I feed her mushrooms now and I take advantage of her, there's going to be consequences later that I don't like. It's really, it's sort of the, it's the moral imagination that there's an outcome of this action that if I take this action, I'm not going to like the future action. And part of that, I'm not going to like the future action is that I will be banished from the tribe and I really won't like having to grub around by myself. You know, one of the stories that I read recently that took me back further is that is this idea of banking was invented in order to fund the exploitation of the new world. They needed to get build boats and get the boats across the water to get the stuff. And they didn't have the money for it, but then they invented debt. They invented the banking system, which is in support of exploitation. And that's a technology that we, you know, maybe it looked like a really good idea at the time, but it, it, it has really jumped the bounds of decency. We're, we're missing, collectively, we're missing a common morality. And morality, I mean, I like the word morality, and maybe it's because I'm Jewish. I like God, you know, wrestling and, and stuff like that, and moral dilemmas, you know, because I think that those are your teething rings for being a human. But that's the thing, though. That's the both the great and scary thing about the Jewish proposition is that we live in a moral universe, that the universe leans in certain ways. You throw out certain kinds of energy and behavior, it's going to spit back something different. You know, So whenever I read Torah or Bible, and God's always saying, if you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do that. It's not like there's a dude up there who's going to do these things to you. It's like, if you engage with the world in this way, it's going to engage with you back. <laughs> and- totally. And this is, you know, I was just reading about parenting in Eskimo society where people apparently learn from an early age to be able to contain their anger. And that doesn't mean they're fuming underneath. So they investigated in this you know, in this story that may have been apocryphal. And they have stories in that society about if you walk too close to the ocean, there's this creature that's going to come out and nab you. You know, so things that, that you do that are dangerous, there's a story associated with this. Or, or in one of my What Could Possibly Go Right interviews, I interviewed Severin Cullis Suzuki. She was the Greta of her generation. She's the young woman who spoke at the Earth Summit in 1992. She was nine years old and she had an eco club and she was in love with nature. And she just told everybody assembled, you're ruining our world. Please stop it. You know, and so she was famous for that. Now she she's married to uh, Haida Man and she lives in Haida Gwaii. And her auntie, you know, her Haida auntie, told her a story about the fish people and how there were these fish people years ago who, you know, fed the community and they were just the most important fish. But the people took too many of them and the fish people went away. It wasn't, you know, it's like a story of overfishing, but it's a story that went down through the generations about you have to take only what you need and not too much. Because in a regenerative world, if you exercise appropriate restraint in, 
using what you need and not overusing. The world is completely abundant and will continue to feed you. If you look at the stories, and I've, I've interviewed Sherry Mitchell, who's a Penobscot, and Lila June Johnston, you know, these stories that are, are a science and a technology of consequences, and that's how they've survived. We don't have stories of consequences. And that, you know, basically what I realized is you can do anything you want, but there are consequences. You get to choose what you do, but you don't get to choose the consequences. Our lives are inconsequential. We are living trivial, inconsequential lives. Even some of the smartest people, even our politicians, because once you understand that there's consequences to your actions, then you have to do the moral Grappling. Well, that's the interesting thing about about the other things you're saying, though. If you're committed to the capitalist system and you're committed to saving and banking and interest, then you can attempt to insulate yourself from the consequences of your actions with money. You know, get a car that drives fast enough to escape from your own exhaust. Right. Exactly. And, you know, that's the irony of this you know, Your Money, Your Life was sort of the breakout book in 1992, and there's a whole movement now that's that sees Your Money, Your Life as a foundation stone for it. It doesn't have a moral streak. It's just, it's basically people figuring out how to use the capital, kind of how to be, if the winners of the game are capitalists, how to be a capitalist, but stick in this thing about enough. So you're capitalist, but you've determined how much is enough because you've realized that if I understand how much is enough, I can liberate my time for other things. I can accumulate enough money and live on the and the in- income. I am a capitalist, and I wonder about this. You know, I'm I like real estate, so I own a, a rental, and I consider myself providing housing and an income, and you know, so right? Because like you could might be an evil rentier. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And the other thing is, is now that I've been taking a look at, you know, uh, colonialism and, right. and racism, you know, looking at that history, I like looked around my house and I thought, you know what, this is stolen land. This is probably my house is completely stolen materials. But you're now renting back to somebody who may have been the indigenous or the the <laughs> child of the indigenous person who you who you your colonial ancestors ousted. I don't know. I mean, I I can create a mental picture of myself just walking out the door. I don't think I can create a mental picture of myself walking out the door without a car with just a bindle stick and a few things in it because I'm 75, you know. So, but, but, yeah, but you know, that's also a that's that's something sad about our society though, that the way I think about money and my career and stuff is I need to earn enough money so that when I'm no longer creating what the society thinks is of value, I've somehow stored up enough nuts to live the rest of my life. You know, totally on my own. What kind of sick society treats its elders like that? You know, and if not, where where you're you're up creek, right? Exactly. And I've done, you know, it's interesting with the pandemic because my strategy for that is I have I converted a couple of spaces in my house into like rentals, like little cell, you know, little, little suites. And I've always thought, well, they're, they're providing income now. And then later I can trade for care. Right. Like, like Olympia Dukakis in, uh, the, 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 <laughs> the, you know, that show, uh, 
that you don't remember it. from the whatever. There's this old lady living in San Francisco with all these cool hipsters, you know, renting spaces in her big Victorian house. Tales from the exactly. City, I think it's called. It is, right? You know, it's like it's like one of the features of the system we live in is if money is the is the measure of value, then you outsource the consequences. You you basically you tell people you are free to have whatever life you want. But the consequences of the pollution of all the the externalities of the capitalist system, you're going to have to internalize the consequences. So industry provides this sort of cornucopia, but when there's a consequence, it's up to you. So it's like we are so far down the track. So before the pandemic, part of my strategy, if you will, but also my deep need for belonging was to move to this little island. It's not so little, but to move to a small community on an island and belong here, you know, just do all the things that one does to belong, you know, make friends and volunteer and, and you know, do theater and, 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 you know, all the little community belonging things. And then suddenly do ecstatic dance every Sunday. Suddenly that all disappears. And it was like, I've had this like, oh my God, I, I didn't factor that in. So it is true. It is true. And everybody's sort of scared and hunkered. So there aren't people who are checking in on Auntie Vicky. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's a strange, I don't know how we dial this back. I think we're going to have to dial it forward somehow. And perhaps that's the high touch part of it. You know, perhaps that's post-pandemic, if there ever is a post-pandemic, you know, where maybe we travel electronically for work or for, as you say, these massive, these beautiful conversations cross-cultural. But we've got to land, I think. Indigenous tribes, indigenous peoples are place-based. I mean, the mountain is their god. You take them away from the mountain, they, they it's like... right. Well, they're place-based, but I mean, if you talk to a, a someone like a Tyson Tunkaporta, who I had on also, they're place-based, but they move around that place. So now we're on the mountain. Now the fish are good. So we'll go down to the stream for these oh. weeks and go over oh. here to collect our berries for this month. They're migratory, but in a, in a circle and they understand yeah. the season and they move through that. When I started trying to figure out what was wrong with freedom in this society that it seemed to be the most beautiful thing was also the most destructive thing in our society. What was this about? One of my great teachers was uh, Amelia Rathbun, who was the founder of Creative Initiative. She's like 94. And I, I said, what is freedom, Amelia? And she, the first thing she says is territory. And I was like, what? But she said, you have to secure your food. If you don't have, you know, if you're an animal and you don't have a territory in which the things that you need, animals don't just roam around. They have a territory and they understand the boundaries of their territory. And the territory is your access to the fundamental resources of food and water. Right, your grazing range. Yeah, exactly. And so it's very interesting, this this relationship of freedom and limits is to have a territory and to tend your territory and to understand what things are necessary and what things 
are superficial, to ha- be able to set a boundary. I know I'm being a little abstract. No, but, but the interesting thing is, you know, and, and Stuart Brand of, of Whole Earth Review and all always talks about how he demanded that we get that photo of the Earth from space so that we would be environmentalist. And I wonder if, on the other hand, getting a picture of the Earth from space changed our notion of territory. It gave capitalists, it gave corporations the ability to go, Oh, the whole world, you know, because we're no longer a rabbit running around in a field. Now we can see the whole darn thing. Isn't New York like that, though? New York is like a, a hodgepodge of neighborhoods. It is. But, you know, when I was in Manhattan and living in the healthy way or a psychologically healthy way anyway, I had boundaries. It was like, I'm going to spend if I go beyond Houston Street to 14th Street you know, or Avenue C to Fifth Avenue, that's my zone. If I'm going to leave that zone today, then I'm counting that as a trip. And I'm going to be conscious that I'm going somewhere. You know, right. And it really did. Otherwise, I refuse to leave that that zone. You know, if I made an appointment, I'll make it in the in the closest part of my box to where you are, but I'm not leaving. And it That's really helps me. Yeah, it's like it's like um, twenty city blocks is a mile. Mm-hmm. And when when I was in New York years ago, I mean the times I visited New York, twenty blocks was what I could walk. I would look at a dress I had to get to, and if it was less than twenty blocks, I would walk there because that's a, that's a mile, and that's in sort of a walking territory. So that's a, you know, it's really we don't even have a body based sense of space. Right. I think it's I think it's quite, I mean, it's exciting, but I think it's quite disorienting for the actual sensate being. To be living in these sort of synthetic environments. Totally. Right. So the grid pattern of New York, I mean, and now it's what websites do you visit or what social networks are you on? Or, you know. I don't know what the solution is. I mean, that's what my, my whole life's work is. It's not mastery of money. It's mastery of need fulfillment and understanding yourself as a complex, beautiful being and putting money in its place. And then it's local food. How do you have some some food sovereignty? How do you have a food community? How do you have how do you belong somewhere through the food that you eat? And then it's like dialogue. How do you get together with people in cafes? How do you just actually talk to people, you know, face to face? It's all what is an appropriate scale for a human to have a sense of self-expression and true mastery in smaller human communities, you had to master the technology of where you lived. You had to master fishing and hunting and, and berry gathering and, you know, sewing and, and, and tanning hot. You had to master, everybody had to master the technology of where you lived. And, and we're so far from that. And to me, that feels imprisoning. That feels like I can't use my wits and my will and my talents and my networks too, you know. I know. Everyone, I think we all feel a bit like we're living on a space station and we don't even know how the equipment works, you know. I can read the rules <laughs> and operate some of these things, but exactly. like if your new refrigerator <laughs> broke down, you're depending on Samsung or someone to come fix it. I, I would have trouble if my freezer broke down because I have a year's worth of, of salmon and <clears throat> organically grown chicken that was, you know, pastured chicken that, that grew on my island. I'm a survivalist, dude. Just stick with me. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. Is there any topic that we want to cover other or, or is this wander perfect? Oh, it's wander's always fine. We're nomadic. We're nomadic thinkers. <laughs> but I guess, you know, what I'm interested in is maybe it always feels like this. You know, I always felt like, look, I wrote this book, Life Inc. in 2007, and they haven't changed corporatism. You know, I wrote about, you know, how we should be regarding technology in 2010. I explained it, that if you're not programming, you know, you're going to get programmed if you're not aware. They didn't do it. And you wrote, you know, you wrote your books before I wrote mine. And it's like, and sure, a lot of us followed, you know, David Bollier followed you and and, and Helena Norberg Hodge about localism and, um, you know, about the commons, about the corporation. And we've got the Schumacher Society and Small is Beautiful. And you've got the Post-Carbon Institute that you're with. It's just so hard to have perspective. Are these movements spreading and growing and or... The fact that Bernie Sanders can't even get the Democratic nomination means that, shoot, we're screwed. <laughs> I mean, are we? have we failed? That's such a great question, and I really have gone through that. I mean, I, I have a lifetime of good ideas that should have taken over the world. And, you know, I've been on a sort of like a, a Joan of Arc quest to like – you know, there's got to be like, like there's something in there, you know, if I could just find the, the source code or the, you know, the spring from which all of this, the river of junk comes. And one of the things that helps me is getting out of the present moment and understanding that, uh, and the pandemic really helps, that we are, we are in historical forces that are way larger than we are. We're in history, you know, and, and, and so our generation really thought we could remake the world. And, and probably you and I are still, you know, <laughs> we're like the Japanese soldier who never, like, understood that the w- war was over. And w- I thought I, we could do it on our watch. You know, I gave 10 years to the teaching of Your Money, Your Life, the teachings, because I was determined that by the year 2000, savings rate would go up consumerism would go down, the ecological footprint measurement would go down, we would be able to live within the means of the planet. It was so obvious to me that this is what was needed. And all I had to do was just tell everybody the good news. You know, I mean, look at Jesus, what happened to his teaching. So I think there is, when I think about like the history of, you know, I don't know how many civilizations, this one um, man Mr. Blub said there were there had been a hundred, but there was a there's a structure to the rise and fall of civilizations, and so we're in a time of of we're we're according to him according to the features that he says are part of a civilization that is just like teetering over the edge. That's us. We're in a dying civilization, and I know we shouldn't say that. <laughs> But, but, but I mean, when you think a hundred have come and gone and come and gone and come and gone, it becomes really interesting. Where is the new civilization? Like, where's the new human coming out of the tree? Where's the new civilization? You know, whether it is the, you know, the sort of Fridays for the future generation is that, you know, there's new civilizations being born now. We're just in one that has run its course. And when I think about that, I think, well, of course, you know, the work I'm doing is sort of, it's literally countercultural. 
is so it becomes a lifeboat. Yeah. I mean, I think about it the other way. I think that their work is countercultural. Your work is pro-cultural, but. <laughs> well, well, yeah, exactly. But maybe we are the civilization that's rising. Maybe your book and your books and my book, just like with the fire movement, you know, it's like, I didn't know that I was like the sort of grandmother, the sort of the grand dame of a movement I had no idea existed. You know, and suddenly, like, and you know, when I came out with the update, I found I found all these people who were like, you know, half a million people who were all over it. You know, it was like, really? Yeah. So we don't know. It's like it's like the you know part of immaturity is is not just doing with your best heart, but is expecting you can control outcome. And so we don't know. I, that's part of what I, I accept. What could possibly go right, even in the end of civilization, is that. You know, when you think about the end of the Roman civilization, you know, maybe Caesar died or Caligula or somebody, but it's like all the people didn't disappear, right? Exactly. It, it's something else comes. It's not like the civilization ends and everybody's dead. And then just like <laughs> one baby somehow survives or new monkeys <laughs> turn into people, right? It's that money right. systems change and the way people operate change. And over a period of two or three or four centuries, we go from being a television air conditioner big agro-based society to a solar-powered local uh, loot-playing society. And that is a possible future. And I have worked toward that future, but what I think I've really lost in the last couple of years facing the the magnitude of what we're up against is the the thought that I could control outcomes, that if I worked hard enough, I could actually change the trajectory. And it's been very despairing that I I have not been able to, but I think that we're, we're actually seeding the c- collective, whatever it is, with the poss- possibilities. There's many possibilities out there, you know, for what the future will be. Another piece of writing that I'm doing is, <laughs> it's basically trying to express that there's four stories that are competing for dominance on this planet, and every story is an anathema to the other story. There's the story that life is about transcendence and the earth doesn't matter. The earth is a veil of tears. And, and the point is to escape from the flesh, materiality. There's a story of AI and the singularity that, you know, carbon-based life is sort of messy, you know? It's just, it's not that great. It was sort of like a, a stage for intelligence to develop itself into silicon-based life. That story is like totally in conflict with the story of transcendence. Then there's the story of progress, you know, the Western story of ever onward, and that materiality is the playground. It's the stuff we get to create with, you know, so the destiny is the stars. And then there's the story of heaven on earth, you know, it's like, we're already here. (laughs) This is it. And so the transcendent story, the AI story, and the progress story are completely destructive to the garden story. Like a lot of what I've worked against, if you will, is the dominance of those other stories. And that's funny. That's what I've been what I've been exactly worried about. You know, so I read like Myth of Eternal Return and the idea of reincarnation and circular, the be here now, everything and and that leads me to see all of these progress narratives, all of these new, new things, all of this transcendence agnosticism as kind of the enemy or the distraction from 
the now. But on the other hand, and also as a Jew in particular, <laughs> I do believe in progress and social justice and making the world better. So do we somehow let all these narratives coexist? Does our, do we go you know, with a circle and a line and get a beautiful spiral and make progress while we stay circular? Or is that itself, is that is that, am I just tricking myself? I think we have to let it all exist because it does. <laughs> <laughs> but in balance somehow, you know, like more of a yin and a yang rather than let all this yang just take over. I don't know. It's, it's you know, I've studied a lot about the polarization, you know, and I have friends who are very into a lot of the conspiracy theory narratives, you know, in QAnon. And I try to stay in conversation outside of indignation, just really curious. Uh, one of the things I find is that if you can enter the information that they have, what they're doing makes sense. And so you have to think, you know, like one friend who's just keeps sending me all these links to like, you know, RT <laughs> sponsored, you know, <laughs> intellectuals who were like complain about being kicked off the mainstream media. But if you think that everybody somehow has a piece of the picture, I'm not condoning what Trump and his people are up to now. I do not condone that at all. But there's a there's a piece of the angst in our society that is embodied in that. What is that? And is it possible for us to listen to the as we talked about in the beginning, listen to the song of all these stories? What is the song? Because in a way, everybody, when you think about it, seems to be trying to make a contribution. You know, and even if they have what we think is a distorted narrative, behind that distortive narrative is probably fear or <laughs> greed, but, but it's also some longing. I think part of the task is this harmonization of the stories. There is something about maturity that can allow many points of view to, to have a contribution without sacrificing your own integrity. You need a softness and a flexibility to be able to engage with life that way. You've got to be more river reed than, than cedar tree. Yeah. Well, I, the cedar tree is in communication with the river that's reed. True. You know, they're all, yeah. But I think that's Even the part cedar tree of is pretty flexible when, when you learn yeah. about it, though. Yeah. But it's part of maturity is like when you realize I'm not just the river reed, I'm the forest me as river reed cannot survive without salmon cannot survive without cedar i think this is maturation is that when you understand deeply that you're part of a larger whole and that you cannot ultimately succeed if that larger whole is somehow not succeeding and so i'm talking about our books you know it's like we did our best into a narrative that had a huge headwind on what we were offering to me that feels like a quest like when i was like reviewing all the interviews i'd done for what could possibly go right listening for the song of it you know, what I was hearing wasn't the policies and wasn't the big ideas. It was something, some qualities of maturity, you know, a sense of history, a sense of time, a sense of justice. These are things that I just think they're valuable to seek to embody, to use as sort of guideposts as we move forward. We don't know where we're going. We're lost in a sea of time. And we can only be moral beings in that. 
That's the only tiller we have. That's the only sail we have is, is our ethics, our integrity, our humility. I mean, these are, <laughs> that's the fundamentals. That's the fundamentals. And it's such a better way to navigate than accumulation. Right. So you're not coming from my fridge, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, with all that salmon, maybe. It's wild, fresh. Exactly. I bet you're the kind of person who's got an extra key under the rock next to the mailbox. I'll I'll get in there. You probably leave the door friggin' open. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. I'll be over. And if your refrigerator or freezer need repair, though, you can interrupt. Talk to my, somebody else. Oh, no, you, yeah, you talk to me while I'm while I'm stealing your food. <laughs> oh, Vicky, it's so great to have you on on Team Human, and and more importantly, in in my life. Because uh, you know we've been on the same journey, and the fact that you've uh, uh, you've been on it longer than me, and are still coming at it with love, hope, and humor, you know, means that I guess I could I could still drum up some, or should. All right. Well, thank you, Vicky Robin, for being on Team Human. We are welcome. Thank you for having me. You've been on Team Human. Our guest today, the author of Blessing the Hands That Feed Us and host of the What Could Possibly Go Right podcast, my friend, Vicki Robin. You can find out more about Vicki at VickiRobin.com or you can find out more about Vicki and all of our guests at TeamHuman.fm where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is edited by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Josh Chaplin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Peeps.